The following audio is from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Axe is available at axechurchleander.com. I come from Luke 23, and so I join you to read along with me on the words on the screen. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him, this is Jesus, to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. They divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood there watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there also heard insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to him, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about noon. Darkness had come over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun had stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus called out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. Glorious. Father, Lord, we come before you asking you to speak. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Again, we're in a series called How to Read Your Bible. And we've been focusing on different genres throughout Scripture. Because when you read through, some of it reads like a story, like a narrative, like a fiction book or a nonfiction book. Some of it reads like poetry. Some of it reads more like discourse. But we've been saying that there are at least some questions that can kind of help us frame how to read scripture regardless of what genre you're in. And what we've been saying is this. How does God protect and provide for his people? Question number one. What is God up to in this section of scripture? Second question then being, Well, what are the consequences of mankind's sin and rebellion? And finally, what is God asking of his people? And then what is God asking of us? And the reason why we have these questions set up this way is because often when we look at the Bible, we want to use ourselves as the centerpiece. And I'll be honest, I am just as guilty as anyone else is in this where I'll be struggling with a challenge or some kind of sickness or some kind of question, and I'll kind of treat the Bible like a figure eight ball. All right, and then you remember those where you shake them and be like, okay, what am I supposed to do? And I'll do that sometimes with scripture, and I'll put myself at the center of the narrative. But what you find really quickly in scripture is that whenever we're putting ourselves at the center of the story, very quickly sin is going to come after that. And so what we've been talking about is, no, Scripture is God's book. And so first and foremost, we have to ask, what is he up to? And mankind has a place in that book, but oftentimes, in fact, more often than not, our rebellion, our own best thinking, gets in the way of what God is trying to do. But then we find, I think someone's cutting hair behind me. Anyway, uh, then we find... Uh, that he does eventually ask his people something. And once we understand what God's asking his people, we can understand what God is asking of us. 
And we've been talking about how the Bible is a story. Old Testament starts the narrative. The Old Testament prophets then talk about what's going to go wrong. But then the Gospels, we get to the climactic scene of the story of what God is doing. And one of my favorite authors, Jim Butcher, says this, everything you do and write leads up to this moment. Deliver on the climax or the story fails. It's as simple as that. Every story sets off to answer a question. The question normally works something like this. When something bad happens, the protagonist sets off to make things right. But will he accomplish their goal when these things get in their way? So a good example of this would be Lord of the Rings, right? When Frodo receives the Ring of Power, he sets off to throw it into the lava of Mount Doom. But will he succeed when the Nazguli and every creepy crawly thing in Middle Earth tries to stop him, right? Every story has that similar beat to it. And scripture is very similar to that. God creates the world to be good, but mankind's rebellion, mankind's sin, mankind's best thinking throws a massive wrench, throws things like death and evil and sickness. And the protagonist, God, tries to restore it. But the question is, will God actually be able to restore a broken world? Will he be able to save mankind even when mankind is actively rebelling against what God is up to? And the Gospels, the book of Acts, is the climactic scene in Scripture. It's answering the question, will God be able to make things right? And like any good story, the story lives or dies on whether or not the climax works. Whether or not this part of the story makes things right. And that's what we see in the Gospels. And so when we're talking about the history and the genre of Gospels, that's where it falls in the story. God created the world to be good. Mankind mucked it up. Death comes in, pain comes in, but God promised, I'm going to send a Messiah. I'm going to send someone who will restore, recreate a broken world. When we look through the different themes in the Gospels, they are deep. And in fact, I probably could have spent an entire year talking about how to read the Gospels. Back in June, we actually did a series where we highlighted each of them, right? We went through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But common themes you're going to see when you're reading through them are the kingdom of God, what it looks like when God shows up. And that's who Jesus was, right? And that's the second one, Jesus' divinity. And so everywhere God goes, things get better. The sick are healed. The hungry are fed. Those who have been isolated from community are brought into a true connection with God, but also to other people. But it also focuses on Jesus' humanity. This isn't some God who can't relate to the hurt and pain of being human. He bumped his knee just like we did. He fought off colds and the flu just like we do. Jesus was both fully God and fully man. We see a God who forgives sins. We see a God who was willing to fight for his people, and in fact, die for his people on the cross. That's what we're going to be focusing on today. And then we find a God who sends out his people, who have been redeemed, who have been restored, to carry on that message. Two weeks ago, we read through the story of Abraham. 
And God had made a promise. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And then he says, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. He promises a hero is going to come. And this hero is going to bless the whole world, he says. Then we get to the Old Testament prophets. We looked last week at Isaiah, and he goes more into detail that this is not going to be a hero like we would normally think of. Isaiah 53 says, Unjustly condemned, he would be led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, but his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. What we see very clearly is that God always had the same plan. It was always leading up to a very unique kind of hero, a very unique kind of king. And every week, we have been using something called the Bible Project to help explain and show a bit more of the story. The Bible Project is a nonprofit that brings together artists and theologians to help explain what God is up to in Scripture. And so this is going to focus a little bit on the Messiah and kind of his story, and we're going to use that to kind of frame the rest of our discussion. There's this crazy story at the beginning of the Bible. We have Adam and Eve, and they're in the Garden of Eden. And everything in this garden is great. It's exactly as it should be, except there's this one tree that they're told by God not to eat from because it's dangerous and it will kill them. So that's it. Uh, Avoid this fruit tree and we're fine. Right. It seems pretty simple. But in this garden, there's a snake and it starts telling a different story. It says that if you eat of this tree, it's not going to kill you. In fact, it's going to make you become like God. And Adam and Eve, they believe the snake and they eat the fruit. And because of this, the goodness of the garden is tragically lost and evil and death enters into God's good world. Now, why is there a talking snake in the garden? I mean, this thing is a problem. Yeah, it's very strange. And even more strange is the fact that the Bible doesn't say why or how this thing even got there. It just presents the snake as this creature who's in rebellion against God and that wants to get other people to doubt God's goodness and lead them on a path towards death. And so whatever this snake is, it's the source of evil that pervades our world and our lives even still today. But there is some hope because right here in the story, God makes this really interesting promise to Adam and Eve. That someone is going to come in the future, a son of Eve. And this guy's going to come and he's going to crush the serpent's head and destroy evil at its source. However, during this battle, the serpent is going to bite this guy's heel. So it's like a mutual destruction. Yeah, it's this very strange but beautiful promise. And it's just left hanging there until the next key moment in the story when God singles out this guy named Abraham and says that through his family, goodness and blessing is going to be restored back to all of the nations of the world. And as we follow this family, we get to one of Abraham's great grandsons, this guy named Judah. And he receives this promise that a king is going to come from his line and that the whole world's going to follow this king and he's going to bring peace and harmony and there'll be lots of food and wine and milk and vineyards and it's going to be awesome. The first king that we meet from the line of Judah is a guy named King David. And he's a hero. Maybe he is the snake crusher. But it turns out that David is infected with the same evil as the rest of humanity. He never crushes the snake, just the opposite. However, God makes a promise to David that this king is going to eventually come from his line. But as you go on in the story, 
One by one, each generation of his sons, they're just total chumps. They give in to the snake, they choose evil, they go after money and sex and power and following other gods. Things get so bad that they run the nation of Israel right into the ground, and the big bad empire of Babylon just takes them out. And so now there are no more kings to even fulfill this promise. So it seems like the whole plan is lost. But during these dark days, there's this crazy group of guys called prophets. And they just kept talking about this coming king and reminding us of the promise that he'll come, he'll defeat evil, he'll restore the garden. Now, one specific prophet, Isaiah, he tells us more about why this king is bitten. Isaiah says that the promised king receives this wound because of humanity's evil and that it kills him. But then all of a sudden he comes back and Isaiah says it's because he suffered this wound that he can now become a source of healing to other people. But the Old Testament ends and the snake-crushing king that everyone's been talking about never shows up. And this is why when the New Testament begins, it introduces us to Jesus of Nazareth, not as some random guy, but as someone who comes to fulfill these specific ancient promises. Yeah, we learn that he's from the line of David, Judah, and Abraham. And he goes around Israel announcing that the goodness of God's kingdom is here now. And he begins confronting the effects of evil on people by healing them, by forgiving them of their sins and evil. Many people are now believing that this is, in fact, the promised king. But Jesus began telling his closest followers that he was going to become king and bring peace by taking the full effect of humanity's evil into himself. The fatal snake bite wound. Exactly. And so it seems like the serpent wins. And this story actually would be a tragedy except for what happens next. Jesus rises from the dead. And now Jesus has the power over evil and death for himself. And so the rest of the New Testament is then making this claim that Jesus's power over evil and death has now become available to us to begin confronting the effects of evil in our lives. But even still, death and evil are a real problem in our world all around us. And so the story of the Bible ends by describing this future day when Jesus comes back and he finishes the job. He destroys the snake once and for all and he restores the goodness of the garden here on earth. So what we've been... I can't have nice things. Um, what we've been doing throughout the series is we've been highlighting what is the genre of scripture. And then we dive into a chapter or two to really see how this works. And again, we could really pick any chapter of the gospel and dig deep into what God was doing. But given that this is the climax of God's story, we're going to focus in on that chapter where we see how far he will go. And we're going to use those three questions. How do we see God protecting and providing for his people? What's the consequence of our rebellion? And then what does he ask of his people once he redeems them, once he saves them? To see how God's narrative, how God's story changes things. Right? So we're going to be in Luke 23. And then the whole assembly rose and led him, this being Jesus, off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? 
You have said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man, but they insisted he stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was Galilean. When he heard that he, Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at the time. Now, when Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. Why? From what he had heard about him, he had hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. He plied on him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends because before this they had been enemies. So the first question is, well, how does God protect and provide for his people? Think about this for a second. This is the hero that they had been waiting for. For over a thousand years, God had been telling his people, I am going to come and send a hero, a Messiah, a king. And this king shows up, and how do they treat him? They mock him ridicule him. They pull him out to do tricks. A magic show. And yet through all of that, he doesn't say, I'm done. Through all of that, he doesn't say, you know what? This is malarkey. You aren't worth it. Instead, what does he do? He says, all right. One step at a time, let's keep going. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who has, was inciting the rebellion, people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he has sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. Even Pilate says, Guys, this, he didn't do anything wrong. But what do the people say? What did the godly say? But the whole crowd shouted, shouted, Away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, Crucify him, crucify him. What's the consequence of mankind's sin and rebellion? We can't even recognize our hero. We think he's the one in rebellion. We think he's the one out of alignment with God. Because we want a hero like we want to be. We want a hero who will be better than thou, or louder, or stronger, or more prideful. And yet we have a king, a Messiah, who comes to wash the feet of the broken. And so we don't recognize him. And every week, I don't recognize him. Oh, I don't yell, crucify him, crucify him. No, I'm a lot more subtle. But I, I, I turn my back on him. Oh, you want me to be kind to that person? You know what? They're kind of a jerk. Oh, you don't want me to cut that person off, but I'm really in a hurry. A thousand ways. I, in my own best thinking, am a part of the problem. But what we see is our hero doesn't stop there. No, the story continues. 
two other men, both criminals, were also led with Jesus to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And hear this, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. What's going on here? There we go. How does God protect and provide for his people? Even when we're in rebellion, he's talking to God and saying, Father, forgive them. I came to protect them. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood there watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said he saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, well, save yourself. Then there was written above him a sign that read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the other criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself. Oh, and us while you're at it. But the other criminal rebuked him and said, Don't you fear God? He said this, uh, since, he, since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly. We are getting what we deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered, Truly, I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. How does God protect and provide for his people? Even when we're in full rebellion, even when we're pushing him away, he is wrapping his arms around us. He is calling out to his Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Forgiveness is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion. Right? We all want to do good. We all try to leave the world a little bit better place. But the difference for Christians is that our foundation, our heartbeat, is forgiveness. And it's forgiveness found in the work of Christ. Because when we are connected to Christ, we are connected to God. And that's why the story doesn't end there. No, it continues on. It was about noon. Darkness came over the whole land until it was three in the afternoon for the sun had stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. The curtain was what separated God from his people. There was a temple in Jerusalem and you weren't allowed to go past the curtain because God was holy and we were not holy. God was in right standing. We were not in right standing. But because of Jesus' work, the climax of the story is he dies and that curtain rips in two. And the last thing he says, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. He says, this is victory. This is God fighting and protecting his people. And another thing you learn about stories is true character. If you really want to know who someone is, you don't know who they are by what they say. You don't know who they are by what they say they believe. You know who they are by what they do. Their actions show their heart. And the actions of our God show a God who fights for his people, who dies for his people, who when we are mocking him and turning our back on him, he is praying for you. He is healing you. He is connecting you to his Father. And what's beautiful is the story doesn't end there. It would be a good enough story if it was just he connected us back to God, if he just wiped the slate clean. But no, he says, now I have a mission for you. I have a purpose for you. And so chapter 23 is not the end of Luke. No, chapter 24 is. 
While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Now they're frightened. They're startled. They're thinking he's a ghost. He said to them, Why are you so troubled? Why do you have doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands. Look at my feet. It's me. Touch me. See, a ghost doesn't have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he said this, he showed them his hands, his feet, and while they still did not believe it because of the joy and amazement, he asked them, Tell you what, do you have anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish. He ate it. He ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. So this is what was always written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the third day. The whole story, he said, was building up to me. And now victory is had. It says, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, bringing at, beginning at Jerusalem. And this is where his story comes into our story. He says, you will be my witnesses of these things, and I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power on high. He says, I am sending you out. He tells his first followers, you are now going to be my ambassadors of reconciliation. You are going to bring about my kingdom, my beauty, my strength. You're going to bring about the message of the gospel. You're going to teach who Jesus is. You're going to love your neighbor as yourself. You're going to show up with things like acts of love and love on moms and dads to help them get through high school. He says you're going to show up at an elementary school and hang out with kids. He says you're going to be a good neighbor to your actual neighbors. He says, I'm going to send you out. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and you are now going to be a part of bringing God's reign and rule and love to a broken world. What does that look like? Well, he says this in Luke 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, and hear this to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. God is telling us the same thing he told his own people, the first disciples. You're going to bring Jesus. And wherever Jesus went, things got better. Wherever we go, Things get to get better. And that's the gospel. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you first and foremost asking for forgiveness. Lord, for the forgiveness of our rebellion, the forgiveness of our own worst thinking, Lord, that separates us from you, that separates us from what you're doing. Lord, we come before you, a God who, even when we were in full rebellion, said, Father, forgive them. And Father, we are bold to receive your forgiveness. But Lord, not just to wipe the slate clean, but to send us out as changed, to be those ambassadors of reconciliation, of your love, of your good news, and of leaving the world a little bit closer to you would have it. Lord, we pray for the boldness to be able to experience that, to take up that adventure. Lord, we say this all in your son's precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at axechurchleander.com.